Um, there are pens on the uh, coffee tables here you can grab hold of. But let me go ahead and open us uh, with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us to be part of your family, part of your household, the household of God. And we thank you for the privilege that we have uh, not only to walk as members of that household, but to be witnesses of that household. And we ask God that as we turn our attention now to how we can cultivate and nurture a, a culture of evangelism, a lifestyle of evangelism in the home, that you would help us to see um, the importance of this and also practical ways that we can grow in this as a congregation. Lord, I thank you for the many ways in which the families represented here are already doing many of the things we're going to talk about tonight. And I pray that, uh, that this lesson would be an encouragement to continue on to, um, to hold the course in uh, faithfully walking as Christians. And I pray that you would help us uh, in uh, this session and next week in our final session as we wrap up this class, that this would be uh, an encouragement uh, and a challenge to us to be even more faithful in evangelism uh, as a church plan. Thank you for each person gathered here tonight. I pray you would make it useful to them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, well, thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, this is our third week, but not our third week in a row. We've had almost a month since we met last, so I wanted to just kind of start off by giving a brief, brief recap. Um, what we'll do here in terms of just kind of format is um, probably take about 40 minutes, and uh, I'll share some things about evangelism in the home, um, and uh, then we'll, I have a few uh, kind of questions for reflection, which you should have on your sheets there, um, that uh, Mark, you can uh, a few questions for reflection, and we'll just take like five minutes, give people a chance to kind of jot down some thoughts, talk about some of those things, and then we want to also have some time to pray. Um, we've talked about the importance of prayer, we want to practice that as well, and so we want to have some time to pray, and then we'll wrap up by uh, no later than eight o'clock. So we'll have time for fellowship and desserts and things after that. But uh, thank, thank you, all of you, for coming. Um, what we've done here in terms of kind of the structure of this class is to start at the biggest, broadest level and then work our way in uh, to more practical kind of application stuff. So our first session was really just asking the question, what, what do we mean when we talk about a culture of evangelism? And we looked at the book of Acts in particular and the, the church in Syrian Antioch to see what that, how that expressed itself in the early church and to see kind of application points that we can take from that. Um, our second session last time we kind of looked at things that can keep us from nurturing a culture of evangelism, some of the obstacles that are there. And uh, as we saw, there are, there are a lot of things that can be challenges to evangelism, both kind of public issues, individualism, pluralism, uh, that type of thing, but also personal issues. Uh, no matter what culture or context we're in, our own fear, our own apathy, our own ignorance can often be barriers to evangelism. And so we have to really um, grow in faithfulness as Christians before we can, or as we seek to bear witness to the gospel. And that's part of why God calls us to evangelism. Even if he never uses us individually to bring someone else to faith in Christ, us seeking to bear witness to the gospel and seeking to proclaim God's word 
is actually a means he uses to make us more like Christ as well. So what we've already seen is that evangelism is not just about evangelism. It, it leads into every other aspect of Christian faithfulness, which is part of why it's so vital. Because if we're not doing evangelism, we're not being faithful in really so many areas as Christians. So that's kind of where we've been. Where we're going now is we going to look at how we can do this in our homes. And then next week we'll kind of broaden that out again to say, how do we do this as a church? So um, as I thought about evangelism in the home, um, there are a lot of things we could talk about. But I want to draw our attention to kind of two, two ways that we can nurture a culture of evangelism in our homes. And I think the first is we do that by pursuing evangelism to the home. And then secondly, evangelism through the home. And I want to unpack both of those um, tonight. When I talk about evangelism to the home, you can probably pick up on, on what I'm, I'm getting at. Really what I'm talking about is um, seeing the importance of fighting for the conversion of every single member of our households. Um, so if you, are, if you are married but you have no kids, you should be seeking to help your spouse grow as a Christian to be faithful in their Christian walk. As you add children to your home by God's grace and in His timing, you want to take each of those children as a soul that needs to be saved, right? And I think all of us can see the, the importance of that. Um, and I want to talk about why, why this is necessary. This might seem like a really obvious point, but I think we can underestimate um, the importance of this sometimes. So I want to look at two, two needs that are here. Um, the first is, there are many biblical precepts that command us to pursue evangelism in the home, to bring the gospel to our children and the, our children uh, into the gospel. There are a lot of passages we could look at here. We can go all the way back to you know, God's, God's dealings with Abraham, that he deals with households, with families, that the, the ordinary pattern uh, is, is not just people way outside of the covenant community being brought in and converted, but that this is an intergenerational thing. Um, and we see um, many explicit commands uh, in the Bible. Let, let's just turn to a few of those. Psalm 78 is one good uh, example. Psalm 78, uh, verses 5 through 6. Uh, Asaph, the writer of this psalm, speaks about the Lord's work and he says he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments this is the ordinary pattern right that God brings um, uh, the, the gospel, the law, his testimony to his people, and that is taught to their children, to teach to their children, on and on down the line. This is what we are called to do. Um, Psalm 119, we won't read the whole thing, but Psalm 119 is in many ways kind of a catechism that the Israelites could use to teach about the Lord and the, the law of the Lord to their children. The book of Proverbs begins you know, with a father instructing his children. This is woven all throughout the scriptures. Um, one passage that should hopefully leap to mind is what we looked at last week in, uh, in the sermon, Ephesians 6, verse 4, right? Where he speaks to fathers, to parents, and says, we are called to bring up our children in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
so the first reason to talk about this is because the Bible talks about this a lot. We are commanded and called to preach the gospel to our children and to, to do everything in our power to bring them to Christ. But there's another reason that we need to have this as a priority. And uh, this is something that um, I think is really important for us to see. Um, there are a lot of cultural pressures that want to pull our children, even Christian children who are well, Christian children, children who are raised in Christian homes, who are raised in Christian churches. There are a lot of pressures in our culture that want to pull them away from the church. And for those of us who've grown up in the church, um, we can probably all point to examples of friends that we had. Maybe we went to Sunday school with, or youth group with, or worship service with, that are no longer walking with the Lord. Maybe adamantly have rejected the gospel. We, we, we see the example of people who have fallen away from the faith. And I was doing some digging into this, and there's uh, a lot of interesting research that's been done uh, to kind of try to put some numbers to this. And uh, some of the kind of worst case numbers you'll hear are, are really frightening things, where people will say, Something like 70 to 80% of kids who grow up in the church will lose their faith, will walk away from the faith, is probably a better way of putting that, by the end of their freshman year of college. That's a daunting statistic. Now, uh, fortunately, when you kind of dig into that number, it's not quite as bad as it seems. For one thing, that's looking at all churches of all stripes. So... Uh, mainline, Protestant, Roman Catholic, you know, any kind of evangelical, um, it's the biggest possible pool. Um, and uh, what that also leaves out is that what, what tends to happen lots of times is people drop out of church in college, and then many of those, about two-thirds, will come back later in life when they get married and have kids and things. But what you do see, even when you kind of take that into account, is that there are huge numbers of people who grow up in churches and they're sitting under gospel preaching and they are growing up in professedly Christian homes and yet they're not holding on to that faith. Um, and many of them are drifting um, not just to other religions or even atheism, but just kind of drifting into that the category of the nuns, people who are just not really particularly religious. They don't see it as a big deal. Um, now here's something that came out really um, interesting in, in some of the research I was doing. Some of you may be familiar with Christian Smith, he's a sociologist. Michael Horton has interviewed him a, a lot of times on White Horse Inn. He's done a lot of looking into um, kind of the profile of people who fall away from the faith, kids who grow up in the church but leave the church. And what he found was this. Um, in nearly 9 out of 10 cases, a child who grows up to, to walk away from the faith is not actually leaving a lifestyle of Christian belief and practice, but is instead leaving a, leaving a label more than anything else. So here, here's what that means. When Christian Smith talked to people who said, yeah, I grew up in the church, but I'm not a Christian anymore. He asked them, how many of you grew up in a home where Christianity was a vital part of your life? Um, only about 11% said Christianity was a vital part of my family's life, and then I walked away from it. About 89% of the time, kids who walked away from the faith said, well, actually, Christianity was not really a big deal. We went to church sometimes, we called ourselves Christians, but we didn't talk about 
the faith. Um, I didn't really have a strong faith as a child. My parents didn't really emphasize religion and the Bible and stuff. It was just kind of part of the furniture. And then I went to college and realized this doesn't really define who I am. And I kind of am shedding that label now of being a Christian. Now, why do I share that? Well, two reasons. One, that should sober us if we are not really being serious in our households about the faith. Um, You may be a Christian family and you may take your kids to church, but if they are not seeing in you as parents um, that Christianity is more than just a label, it is a, a, a way of living, a way of believing, it is about faith and repentance, it is about daily walking with the Lord. If they're not seeing that lived out, in about 89% of cases, they walk away from that faith because it's, it's nothing that was part of their real life. Um, that should be sobering to us. Now, the encouraging part of that is um, in families where it's more than just a label. This is something real, something vital, something important. Most of the time, kids carry on that faith. And I would just be curious, how many of us, how many of you... Um, who are Christians now, grew up with strong Christian parents. Just raise your hand. Not everyone, but most. That should be an encouragement to us as parents, right? Now we're going to talk in a moment here about how I'm not trying to teach that if we just do X, Y, Z, bingo, out pops a Christian child. That's not how it works, right? Salvation is of the Lord. And yet, God's ordinary pattern, which we see in the scriptures, we also see here that most of the time, um, faithful Christian households produce faithful Christian offspring. So what's, what's the big point I'm trying to make here? The big point I'm trying to make here is this. As we think about evangelism, yes, let's talk about ways we can bear witness to um, those who are outside of the church altogether. I think as a whole, in Reformed churches, that's an area we, we need to grow in, we want to grow in. But let's not do that at the expense of um, the mission field God has placed so many of us in right here and right now. It, just imagine this scenario. Imagine you were talking to someone and um, they were sharing with you about how, you know, in their work, they worked at Boeing, and over the years they had just talked to coworkers and clients and people that they knew at work, and over the years they had seen half a dozen people come to faith in Christ through those kind of workplace conversations. Would that be an exciting story to hear? I think it would be. We would say, wow, look at this. Someone who's just in a normal job, normal course of life, bearing witness to the gospel, and people are coming to faith in Christ. That would be exciting to us. And yet we look at a mother who faithfully shepherds her kids, her two, three, four, five, six kids, whatever it is, and Many or all of those kids grow up to to walk with the Lord, to marry Christian spouses, to have Christian kids themselves, and we just kind of think, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. Those are souls that have been saved. Or those are people who have been evangelized, often through difficult, daily, mundane witnessing. So especially for moms who may come to a classes like this or read books on evangelism and think... Oh my goodness! How do I how do I go out and do you know the extra work of evangelism? God is calling us to do that, but let's also see how evangelism is wrapped up in the daily callings that He's brought us into. 
um, as I've been kind of working on this class, you know, you see different models of evangelism, and people talk about friendship evangelism, where you do evangelism just by being friends with non-Christians, and then they become Christians, or lifestyle evangelism, just kind of live like a Christian, and then people will magically become Christians. Um, I think all of those models are lacking. Um, usually they're lacking the emphasis on proclaiming the Word of God, which is how the Gospel is shared. But all of them grab hold of something that is true. Um, friendships are natural context for evangelism. We're going to talk about hospitality here as a natural way of evangelism. Your lifestyle as parents is a natural way of evangelism. So let's um, let's not be satisfied by just saying, well, I'm just going to live a Christian life and hope people become saved. God calls us to more than that. But He doesn't call us to less than that. And let's not underestimate the, the ways in which even just as faithful parents or faithful members of a congregation who come alongside parents, who work with children um, in Sunday school or in BBS or just by you know sitting with them in a pew on Sunday or talking to them after, after church, all of those are ways that we can help bring people to the kingdom of God. Um, so what are some, some means for that? If that's the need, if there are these biblical precepts and these cultural pressure, what are some means... Um, for, for doing evangelism to the home. And I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because, in one sense, we've been talking about this for the last couple weeks in the sermons. You know, husbands and wives, parents and children. Um, this is what we've been kind of focusing on. But I do want to just mention a couple things. Uh, the first thing is, we do evangelism to the home by, by being fruitful. And I want to be careful about this because there are, there are different ways of thinking about this question in the church. Um, there, there's kind of one camp that says um, the Bible gives us no direction or encouragement in terms of how many children we should have or whether or not we have children. It's purely a private choice between a couple. And if we just decide we don't want kids or we're not really kid people, then we can just choose not to have kids. No big deal. Um, that's a very modern way of thinking that uh, almost no one before the 20th century brought to this question. For most of human history, and especially for most of the life of the church, um, having children is seen as part of the blessing and benefit of being married, of, of being in a family. And when you read through the Bible consistently, having children is a good thing and a blessing. Not having children is is not. It's actually a trial oftentimes. Um, and we do still have the biblical command to be faithful and multiply. And as we bring to that this gospel lens of seeing how God's ordinary pattern is to have children brought into a Christian home, maybe that's through natural childbirth, maybe it's through adoption, it could be different ways, but to bring children into a Christian home and those children to then carry on the faith themselves, to become Christians, there's a strong impetus to, to have children. I think we can say that biblically. There is the other side, though, and probably some of us have bumped into this in different circles as well, um, where you've got to have ten kids or you're just not a faithful Christian. Right? You have as many kids as possible, and you know any kind of waiting or planning is completely unbiblical. Um, I don't know that we can say that either. So I'm not, I'm not stepping into this to say you have to have X number of kids or the big family is automatically godlier than the small family or anything like that. But I do want us to see how uh, childbearing and child rearing are linked with the propagation of the gospel. 
And there's a lot of questions and reflection and wisdom needed in walking through that. And those are those are conversations that are probably best had um, between spouses and with your elders, with leadership, with godly Christians. So I'll leave it at that. But I, I do want to encourage you to think about that basic command in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. To think about and to think about passages like Psalm 127 or 128 that very clearly teach us that children are a heritage of blessing from the Lord and a means through which God grows his kingdom. So I'll leave it at that. Be fruitful. Um, secondly, be faithful. And this is really what we were looking at last week with Ephesians 6. Um, parents, are we, are we aiming for the souls of our kids? Or are we only aiming for their success and other things? All of us want what's best for our kids, right? But typically, we tend to think about, I want them to go to the right schools, um, have the right hobbies or extracurriculars, you know, have the right friends, be happy, marry the right person, you know, whatever it might look like. But is the health of their souls, their holiness, as big a priority for that for us as some of these other things? And that will be expressed by how we speak to our kids, um, how we structure our time. Um, many of us, uh, I think, find it easy to make time for hobbies and activities as families, but then we struggle with family worship, or we struggle with meals around, you know, having meals together where we can talk about the sermon or talk about what we're learning, what we're reading. Um, if someone, were again, were to step into our lives with a video camera and follow us, for a week or a month, what would they list as our priorities as a family? Um, again, I'm not going to go into all the details of ways of doing this, but but I want to just connect Christian parenting with evangelism. So faithfulness. Um, let's make this our goal. Let's make this our aim because this is one of the main ways God spreads uh, the faith. Um, and then finally, and this is what I already alluded to, let's do this, let's bring this perspective to bear, but let's also be very humble. Um, as Reformed people, we, we do not believe that evangelism is about um, just following the rule book, pressing the right buttons, and out pops a new Christian. Um, let's not be Arminian parents who think that, well, if I, if I catechize my kids, they memorize a shorter catechism. We have family worship every night. We go to church every time the doors are open. You know, they, they read R.C. Sproul books and they, they listen to good theology and teaching. Oh, then they will just be automatic, great, reformed believers. Um, there are many faithful parents who have had to watch with great pain and heartbreak as their kids walk away from the faith. And um, we can always look at ways we can do better as parents, but there are, there are times where, through no fault of their own, kids, you know, parents walk, watch children who walk away from the faith. And um, there can be certain circles, and um, I think growing up in the homeschool community, you know, there were there were some people who fell into this way of thinking that if you just do the right thing, just train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old he will not depart from it. You know, missing the proverbial context of that passage and other things. Um, so let's not fall into that. Let's recognize salvation is of the Lord. So a huge part of that faithfulness, parents, expresses itself in prayer, right? Um, let's let's leave from our knees first and foremost um, as parents. And, and, and this is a way, I know there's some of you here who don't have kids, maybe aren't even married. Please, please, please be praying for every child at Kirk of the Plains and for the parents of those children. 
Because this is God's means, oftentimes, of bringing people into the faith, but it is always a battleground. And even those of us who grew up in the church and are still in the church, think back over your walk. Were there not real times where you look back and you think, wow, how in the world did I not fall away? And my friend did. Um, Maybe you didn't have a big season of rebellion. Maybe you looked good on the outside, but I think we can all look back and see ways where we were just a night's edge away from walking away from the faith. But God kept us. And it's not because we were just a little bit sharper spiritually than our friends. It was because of the faithful grace of God, the, the work of our parents, and the prayers of the saints. So let's do that for the, the kids who are downstairs right now as well. A lot more we could say about that, but that's just one, I think, angle that we really need to emphasize, evangelism to the home. But there's also evangelism through the home. And um, there's, there's different things we could probably talk about here, but what came to my mind most pointedly was biblical hospitality. I think this is a really um, necessary but neglected way that we can nurture cultural evangelism in our homes. And this can happen whether you have a big house or an apartment. It can happen whether you have a family or you're single. Um, No matter your situation, there are ways that you can practice biblical hospitality. And I believe biblical hospitality can be an incredibly powerful way of bringing people into contact with the gospel. And I think particularly so in our day and age. I want to unpack that a little bit. But first, let's just talk about what is biblical hospitality. How would we define that? Um, Let me just ask you to think about what comes to mind when the word hospitality is thrown around, either in the church or outside the church. Um, Shree and I did a a small group uh, this last year at our our home church in Michigan on hospitality. And we talked about this in our group. And a lot of people had the same kind of picture I think many of us would have, which is, you know, hospitality is kind of putting on that perfect dinner party, you know, where you have the right food and everything is sparkling clean and your house is immaculate and your children are well behaved and it's kind of, you know, making things look good and having a good evening and that's what we think of as hospitality, which is part of why many of us don't practice hospitality because that's a daunting, intimidating task and you look around your dinner table and you see kids you know, running around in their diapers, or not running around in their diapers, uh, you know, kitchen counters that are not clean, dishes that are not washed, food that's from a box, and you think, I cannot do hospitality. Not my spiritual gift, right? Um, There's nothing wrong with having a nice evening, right? But when the Bible talks about hospitality, that's not what it has in mind. It has in mind something, in a sense, much more simple, but also much more profound. And what I want to do is just look at a few passages that talk about hospitality. So I wonder if I could get a couple of volunteers to look up some passages for me. Could somebody look up Romans 12, 13? Mark, you got that one. And then could someone else grab uh, Hebrews 13, 2? Chris? And then Bill, do you want to do uh, 1 Peter 4, 9? These are just three kind of sample passages as others we could look at. All of these talk about hospitality. I want to, I want to hear each of these, and then let's put together kind of a definition of what biblical hospitality is. So Romans 12, 13, Hebrews 13, 2, and then 1 Peter 4, 9. Mark, whatever you're ready. Yeah. So 
contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Okay, that's Romans 12.13. Now Hebrews 13.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, where thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And then last one, 1 Peter 4, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Alright. So, from that, I kind of put together this definition. There's probably other ones we could come up with. Um, but I think we can summarize biblical hospitality as regularly and willingly welcoming others into our homes with an attitude of sacrificial love. Let me read that again. I think we can summarize biblical hospitality as regularly and willingly welcoming others into our homes with an attitude of sacrificial love. So if hospitality is not just putting on the perfect evening, um, what is it talking about? And I think these verses help us to see what it is that we're called to. The first thing we see from Romans 12 right, is that we are commanded to practice hospitality. It's not an optional thing if you feel like it or if you can fit it into your schedule or if you are a particularly gifted cook or hostess, then, then you can do hospitality. This is part of the basic commands. Tribute to the needs of the saints, practice hospitality. Um, I think all of us are called to obey this command. There are certainly some people who are really gifted in hospitality, and so that can express itself differently. But all of us, in some sense, have to obey this command, practice hospitality. Um, Hebrews 13.2 and 1 Peter 4.9 kind of bring in different aspects of this. So if you've read anything about hospitality, you've probably come across this idea of hospitality as specifically about care for strangers. I think that is an important point to make. Um, if we think about hospitality as a dinner party, we can also think of hospitality as having people over after church, right? You know, we had people um, over, and it was a great time, and that was hospitality, and wonderful. Um, but hospitality in the Bible has a, has a specific kind of focus, and often the examples we find are, are not just having your friends over or other people from the church over. It's often about having the stranger over, someone that you don't know, someone who is um, unfamiliar to you, who is different from you in some way, and you're welcoming that person in. I think that's what Hebrews is kind of drawing our attention to. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some have entertained angels unaware. And there are examples in the life of Abraham and others we could look at um, to see that. I think that's an important point for us. And this is an area where I think um, it's going to be very difficult. You know, oftentimes just having our Christian friends over can be a lot to keep up with. And then we think about having unbelieving neighbors over and kids from across the street and coworkers and all of that. And that gets much messier. It can be more difficult. It can be more intimidating. So sometimes we limit our hospitality to just really what we could call fellowship. And we're falling short of the biblical command to show hospitality to strangers. That's actually what that word means, love of strangers. So that's an important corrective, I think. And some have been kind of really emphasizing that in articles and things. It's about reaching out to those that you wouldn't normally. But I've heard some people go so far as to say having your Christian friend over is not hospitality. That's only fellowship, different category. If you're doing that, you're not doing hospitality. I don't think that's quite getting it either because 
what was it that First Peter four nine said? Um, show hospitality to one another. Right? This is one of those one another commands. Peter is writing there to the Christian church. Actually, the Christian church in the midst of a hostile world. And he says, one of the things you're called to do is to show hospitality to each other. So I think this includes having each other over, reaching out to that family in the pew next to you and saying, hey, you want to come over next week for a meal? But let's not limit ourselves to that. So it is about regularly and willingly doing this, right? We're called to pursue this and... Actually, the Greek has this idea of an ongoing thing. This is something we're supposed to to seek out. Do not neglect to do this. Make it a habit in your life. Um, And Peter also draws out that idea that we're showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. So the heart is very important. This is also one of the differences between hosting and hospitality. You know, hosting where you're putting on a dinner party is about making yourself feel good because you put on a great show or making other people feel good because they've had a great evening. Hospitality is about more than that. It's about sacrificially loving and serving um, those around you. So I hope you can see the importance of this. And remember, this is something that elders are required to be hospitable, right? And, and elders don't have some sort of special set of, you know, um, character traits. They're actually just supposed to be model Christians in many ways. So all of us are called to this. Now, why is it needed? If that's what hospitality is, regularly and willingly welcoming others into our home with an attitude of sacrificial love, why is that so important and why is that connected with evangelism specifically? There's a couple of things we could say here. I have three. Um, the first thing I think, first reason why I think it's so important and necessary is that, especially in our cultural moment and, and climate, Hospitality really is a countercultural act um, that, done rightly, can bear witness to the gospel, can reflect the gospel. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying you invite your neighbor over for lunch and you preach the gospel to them, right? You've not preached the gospel until you preach the gospel. Words are necessary. Open your Bibles, proclaim the word of God, speak of Christ. Just being a nice person and having others in your home is not stepping into that task of evangelism. But hospitality does create many opportunities for evangelism, perhaps more than we can do in any other way um, in our own context. And part of that is because if you talk to unbelievers, um, they are almost never in each other's homes. It's very rare for people to... um, to spend time with their neighbors, to spend time outside of work with their coworkers, to to have friends outside of maybe kind of a hobby group or something. And, um, it's a, it's amazing how much of this we take for granted, especially if you've grown up in the church, that you just have a community of people and you're in each other's lives and you're sharing meals together and childcare and you know helping each other and all of that. You know, that's not typical. When most people have a baby, there isn't a group of a hundred people that signs up to bring meals to them, right? They just have to kind of figure it out or ask family or something like that. And so when we as Christians seek to bring others into um, into our homes and to, to share meals with them, to share our life with them, to to help them when they are struggling or, or, or need a hand in, in different ways is a radical thing. Um, and it also, I think, breaks down many of the obstacles that exist to the gospel. We talked last time about some of those obstacles, and one of the big ones was individualism, right? People are just cut off from each other. Part of why, I don't think that street preaching is 
wrong. Um, I don't think, you know, going out and trying to witness downtown, I've done that um, in, in different contexts and things, and I've seen God use that. But it's also hard to do in our context because we don't really have a village square in American cities. Um, there's People don't go and talk and have those conversations typically just on the street. It doesn't mean it's bad to try and do that, um, but you're often trying to kind of work in a context that that is very foreign to people. Um, but most people respond well when you invite them to a meal. And there's very natural opportunities to, to pray over a meal, to have family worship and invite people who are there to stay for that family worship. Uh, people have a chance to see Christian marriages lived out, Christian parenting lived out, to hear you talking about um, the gospel and the implications of the gospel and the scriptures and, and, and all sorts of ways. And as you get to talk to people and hear their story, oftentimes you get to hear about you know, what, what's their background with church and things. And if you were to walk up to that person on the street and start asking them those questions, they would close up oftentimes, right? Because we're... We're not used to that. We don't like that. If someone walked up to us and started asking those questions, we would clam up too. But when you're in your neighbor's home, they start asking you about what's important to you and your background and your story. It's very natural to share those things and to build off of those things. So I think we have an opportunity um, to bring people into our lives and to bring the gospel to bear there just through inviting someone over for a meal. It's a very simple thing. Um, but I think a very effective and natural way of doing that. Um, I think another reason is that hospitality, biblical hospitality, is one of God's appointed means of building up his church. And um, I think we see this in the scriptures. Um, I think we, we, we see this um, not just in terms of, of... So this is a way, as we're talking about now, of how unbelievers can come into contact with the church. And it's interesting to look even at, you know, when you talk to people who have come from the outside, in a sense, into Christianity, and you say, how did you become a Christian? Very rarely is it the case that some person came up and talked to them and they became a Christian. Usually what happens is there is kind of a network of different Christian relationships that formed in their life over a period of time and then they came to faith in Christ. That's typically how it happens. That doesn't mean God is bound to work that way. He can, he can have a 30-second elevator conversation be a means of converting someone. Um, but ordinarily, people come into contact and relationship with multiple Christians, and then they come to faith in Christ. Um, and so I think hospitality is a, is a natural way where we can be having unbelievers in and having other believers to that same meal with them and bringing them into Christian contact, bringing them into Christian friendships and relationships. And, and that's a powerful means of, of building up the church. It's also a way, as we have other believers in our lives, that builds up Christian fellowship as well. So this is where, I hope you see that both of these things, right, parenting and hospitality, um, these are both separate from evangelism in one sense. They're distinct from evangelism. But I hope you can see that they're inseparable from evangelism. And maybe in our minds, we tend to kind of put them in different boxes. So you might have a parenting class and a hospitality class and an evangelism class. But all of these things should fit and flow together. That's the big point I want us to see. And um, our walk and our witness flow out of each other. And so as we do hospitality, we have the chance to do evangelism. We have the chance to build up 
um, others in the faith. We also have a chance to parent our kids well so that they can see how we interact with unbelievers. So all of this kind of loops around and feeds um, together. A lot more we could say about that, but let me just wrap up by giving some some practical kind of pointers on hospitality. And we can we'll talk about this some in our discussion um, as well, Lord willing. Um, I was reading an article by um, a lady named Pat Ennis, and she kind of just gave a list of some basic things you can do to begin to practice biblical hospitality. Um, This is kind of speaking to men and women, husbands, wives. Um, But the first thing she said is collect and file simple, inexpensive recipes for desserts and meals. Uh, Again, try to move away from the hosting mentality. Sometimes you feel like you have to make something really special. It doesn't have to be that. It can be hot dogs and grilled cheese. It can be spaghetti. It can be chili. Something in the crock pot. Something easy. That's good, right? Um, we found, Sheree and I, as we've been recipients of hospitality, that sometimes the best um, hospitality we've received is the most simple. Sometimes when you go to someone's home and it is immaculate and it's this five-course meal you can never make on your own, it's almost intimidating and inhospitable because that's not the way we live, at least. Maybe you guys do, but you know we don't typically. That's not what our typical uh, day looks like. And so sometimes just joining normal family for a normal meal can be the most welcoming. So so don't overcomplicate it. You know, find simple, easy ways of doing this. Um, sit down and make a list of people you can have over. And, and it can be very simple. If, if you really have not grown up with having people over or doing hospitality, maybe you start by just having someone from church over. You know you have a lot in common. You know you believe a lot of the same things. Just start there and begin to build that habit, that lifestyle of having other people in your home. Um, pray regularly right, for this work of hospitality, especially if you seek to bring unbelievers into your home. If you see this as a mission field, if you see this as a place of spiritual warfare, then it's not down to you being the best host or the best hostess. It's down to the Spirit of God to work through these ordinary means to bring people into the kingdom of God, to bring up opportunities to speak uh, about the scriptures, to speak about Christ, to speak about the gospel. Um, And so bathe this in prayer. And um, let me just give one very practical tip that um, has been probably the most transformative thing for Sheree and I thinking about evangelism and hospitality and the connection between them. And that is I would encourage all of you to set aside a regular time on the calendar when you will have people over. Try to get try to move from the question of will we have somebody over this week to who will we have over this week. So here's the way that works for Sheree and I. It'll look different for each of you and your family and things. Um, Every Friday night, we have people over. Um, Typically, we'll have a couple of different family units over because in our context, a lot of them are seminary students or single people. So it's not like you're getting eight people at once, you know. You've got maybe half a dozen people over, and there might be a couple singles, one or two couples. Have a meal, do family worship together, and then play board games. We like board games, so we play board games or maybe talk or something every Friday night. So it's just a matter of who's, who's going to be on that list this week. Um, about two or three Sundays a month, we'll also have someone over on a Sunday, either after the morning or the evening service. Um, 
it might be once a week for you, it might be once a month for you, but regularly have a time, maybe you say the first Sunday afternoon of every month, we're having somebody over. I would really encourage you to do that because it begins to build a habit. And what you find is hospitality is like anything else. The more you do it, the better you get at it. The first time Free and I started doing this, it was a lot of work. Um, it was good, but it could be difficult. And, um, and we were very much still kind of thinking in the hosting mentality more than the hospitality mentality. As we've done this now um, regularly for a while, it just kind of works like clockwork and we each have our different jobs and tasks with prep, with hosting, with cleanup, and it is much easier. It happens much more naturally. I think we've gotten better at it with the conversations and the food and all of that. And God has borne a lot of fruit from that in terms of building relationships and connecting people and getting to know our neighbors and things. We live in a neighborhood where everyone's friendly, but no one's friends with each other. And we're beginning to see that change a little bit um, by God's grace. And so we're, we're hopeful that that can even go even further. But that's the first thing I would say is just make that a regular thing. Um, and then as you begin to do that, then ask yourself the question, okay, who are we having over? Is it always those inside, right? Other um, reformed people, other Christians, other conservatives, or are you branching out and inviting the person in who who's not part of your group? And, and that could be an unbelieving neighbor. Um, it could also be that person at church that you go to church with, but they're kind of difficult to talk to. Maybe they don't talk much at all, and so you feel like it's just you have to drag everything out of them, and it's very laborious, or maybe they talk a lot, and so it's just, you know, maybe you're intimidated to have them over for some reason. Um, don't just invite people over that it's comfortable. And that's part of why I worked on that word, sacrificial. And I think also why Paul or Peter says, do it without grumbling. If it was just having your friends over, why would you grumble? You like your friends, they like you, you do things you like, it's great. Um, the fact that he has to warn us against grumbling means hospitality will sometimes be difficult and challenging and demanding and requires sacrifice of us. Um, and uh, if you've read Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with the House Key, um, you, you know um, how radical and serious evangelism in hospitality can look like. Um, maybe what you might walk away with is feeling like, wow, unless I'm having, you know, drug-addicted foster children in my home every single day. I'm not doing hospitality. Um, I don't think that has to be you know, the standard. But hospitality should require sacrifice. If it's always comfortable and you're never tempted to grumble, you're probably not doing hospitality. Um, so let's think about how we can grow in this. So um, there's a lot more we could say about this, and I, I'm curious to hear thoughts and input from others. But let's just take a, a few minutes, and you should have those two questions at the bottom of your sheet. What's the greatest challenge you found in pursuing evangelism to your home? And what's the greatest challenge you found in pursuing evangelism through your home? So we're going to just give five minutes, and at 7.30 we'll stop, and we'll just take about 10, 15 minutes to talk about those uh, things together. So just take a few minutes to jot down some, some thoughts on that. So let's talk about that first question. What's the greatest challenge you found in pursuing evangelism to your home? What are some things you guys had written down? 
getting caught up in the immediate rather than the important <coughs> and just focusing on what's right in front of me and what fire is burning right now and trying to put out that fire rather than dealing with <laughs> figuratively or literally <laughs> or <laughs> literally we put out the fire <laughs> yeah yeah I'll say I put down three things, but the three things all boil down to the same thing. Um, I, I wrote down time, making it a priority, and schedule, and those are all the exact, they all boil down to the same thing of if you're, you don't feel like you have enough time, if you feel like your schedule's too busy, you haven't made it enough of a priority. And that's, for me, it's am I making this enough of a priority? Uh, to sit down with my wife and my children, mm -hmm. open the word, mm -hmm. and study, mm -hmm. or to pray with them. Yeah. Discipline. I kind of like that, but it's slightly different. I kind of have a candid statement here. There are times when I would rather pursue comfort than sacrificially with this to serve my family. Mm -hmm. I mean, bluntly, that is what it is that I'm doing. Oftentimes, there's nothing left in the tank at the end of the day, and I'd rather check out, just watch a television show or something. I, this is not necessarily my case, but I, I was thinking uh, very recently people tend to rely upon the church. Oh, that's what we think in the church, that the church does that, you know, or that. I, they go to Christian school. So thankfully, I, did, I don't have that mindset. Um, but uh, that's another common thing that it's not the church's job or the school's job, but it's their home. Yeah. One thing to share along those lines is I was reading through all this research about, you know, kids that stay in the faith, kids that leave the faith. Um, when they look to see, okay, going to Christian school or being in youth group or any of that, does that affect, you know, on its own, someone's staying in the faith or not? It has virtually no statistical effect. Which is not to say those things are not important, but basically, if that is all there is, Christian home, or Christian school, you know, youth group, that will not generally be enough to bring a child, you know, for children to really have faith. It almost always comes down to the parents. And then those other things, if the parents are there and really modeling and calling and preaching the gospel, then you know the, the youth group, the BBS, the Christian school can be tremendous supports, but they can't hold the weight on their own, just statistically speaking. And I think we can flesh out theologically why that's the case as well. Um, so parents, it, it really is uh, in one sense a, an encouragement to us that God has called us to this and, and he, he tends to work through that, that as well so, yeah I, I had down kind of similar to what several of you mentioned as I was thinking about different struggles a lot of it comes down to consistency and just you know I might do family worship I might pray with my wife I might have devotions but are those things consistent? And often they're not. They're hit or miss, and they're hit or miss because you know you get tired, you get distracted, you because other things you want to do, you know, whatever. Um. I have something else to um, that. It has been at times, you know, it's uh, uh, 
we have to remember what that we have to assume, you know, that our kids, you know, are dead in their sins and trespasses. So we are going to hit stages when they just do not care. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard when you are trying to get a point of and they just don't care. They don't want to care, you know. And you see the attitude of, you know, here we are. And um, we have to plow through it and we have to do it in yeah. well, uh, it, you know. You cannot wait for them to always be come and keep them spiritually because they'll be waiting for it. So um, that's another challenge sometimes. Uh, it's a discouragement or, or a reason that they don't care. But we have to care and we have to push. Yeah. And like in time or out of time. Um, I, I, if anything, I, I know sometimes my kids have to think that I preach all the time, you know. <laughs> and and, and, and do, but you know what, I'd rather err on this side mm -hmm. than in the other side of not, you know. Yeah. Because here comes my mom again. But that was, you know. Yeah. And that's where, too, we, we should preach in many ways, you know, one of which is instruction, teaching, explicitly, you know, but also in our lives and as they see us, you know, do you ask your kids to forgive you for things when you've sinned? Do they see the implications of the gospel worked out in your relationships? And do they see you giving time to the word and things? And so all of those are, are powerful testimonies. Anything else that someone had that was different than what we've mentioned? So let, so what about that, the, the second question, what about evangelism through your home? What have been some of the, the challenges or issues there? You can hit on this, but I think hospitality also can be practiced um, in meeting needs of others mm -hmm. in the community. Yes. Yeah. Stuff. I know I've seen that um, powerful or whatever. Um, it shocked me that it wasn't really that big of a deal. I just, um, a family that I'm very involved in helping with now all started out because she was having back surgery and I offered her a meal. Mm -hmm. It was the first time anyone had ever brought her a meal in her whole life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it just felt manful. She was going on and on and on about it to her. I'm like yeah. red in the face and yeah. like, it's really not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. needed it, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's something I think too that sometimes when schedules are busy, look outside your box as well. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those opportunities are there. Yeah. Um, when it's hard to bring people in your home. Yeah. And, and that's where hospitality, you know, can can be reaching on building a relationship with someone who's different or other. Maybe they're you know they're not in your home, but you're still doing that. Or you know it can be talking to the person at church who's difficult to talk to or kind of on the margin. So there are many ways this can express itself, um, even if you're not in a position to have a table full of people, you know, for whatever reason. Um, Amen. Uh -huh. I was going to say, too, I think it, it, it can be very simple. I think, in some sense, hospitality, I don't I mean, I think they're definitely really good. But I think if, if that scares people, sometimes it's just thinking, how can I get people in my home? In, in one sense. So it could be even, I have a coworker that he has a car problem. I'm sort of a car guy. He's really not a car guy, you know, so I'm going to invite him to over and bring his car over. There's no meal, there's no nothing. I'm just working on his car. You know, maybe he doesn't get past my garage, but mm -hmm. he's at my home and stuff like that. I think just even very simple things like that, or you have a hobby with somebody at work, 
Maybe it's video games. I don't know. You say, hey, watch come over. I got a new video game. Let's, let's play. But I think even just starting out and things like that, because people out there, this whole idea, like what Nicole said about you know taking a meal to somebody for her, that's like nothing. I mean, right. Christians do that all the time. Doctor in the world, that is so crazy that for somebody even just to have mm-hmm. them come to my home is really like wow. They sort of care for me, and I can, like you said, it just sort of begins to break down those walls. And you know, you're probably not going to have an opportunity to share the gospel with the carburetor, but maybe you might. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But the foot in the door. I was going to say that was my thing. Is that I think a challenge that I found is when it comes to truly showing hospitality to true strangers, mm-hmm. because it's so countercultural. There are a lot of people who are just won't come. Like they're like, that's right. weird. Like, mm-hmm. what are you wanting to do? What's your agenda that you're trying to push on me? If you're trying, and so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that I found um, really helpful is, especially with like mom, just fell along with it. Is like, hey, do you want to meet at the park? Do you want to be in this splash pad? Mm-hmm. Hang out, talk, and then that leads into, hey, we'd love to have you over mm-hmm. for a meal. And then it's way less awkward because you've had a chance to feel it out <laughs> and talk to something that you're not worried about getting murdered or anything but I think that I think that like we've done that we have a, a, a daily or weekly time set apart for family hospitality but then I've kind of set aside a day of the week that I meet specifically with other moms or strangers at the park mm-hmm. uh, and I just make that it's just the Thursday afternoon thing that we do it's I find somebody and we get together and it's it's been really cool to see how something as simple as that takes new extra work yeah. has really led into a lot of opportunities to actually end up having them in our home. Yeah. After Yeah, for us up in Michigan, one of the best <laughs> things one of the best things that happened for our hospitality was the polar vortex in <laughs> January where all the cold, cold, cold weather came from up north. But we had tons of snow and in probably one week, I had more interactions with my neighbors than I had in the last three or four months because we're all out shoveling our driveways <laughs> and helping each other dig cars out and that kind of thing. And sometimes those things are necessary and helpful. You know, the conversation over the fence that can lead to coming over for a barbecue or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, just, just having a long-term goal, especially with our physical neighbors, where it's like you do, you are next to these people unless they move or you're moved. That's where they are, you know. Um, just work on those things slowly. Be wise, bathe in prayer, uh, but be willing to, yeah, send the invitation. Uh, and so the, the greatest challenge, and I think as as any prideful woman, <laughs> your house being messy is really hard to overcome. Mm-hmm. And I think just learning to pace—not that I'm good at this at all—but learning to pace yourself that, okay, you know what, I might have an inch worth of dust, but at least I wouldn't be embarrassed if things are picked up, you know, on a regular basis, you know. And so I think as women, just learning to manage your household, maybe a a little more regularly. And also realistically. And realistically, yeah, (laughs) that it's not going to be perfect. And you can always apologize for a mess, Mm -hmm. you know. And and people are, I think, feel more welcomed with that. Yeah. Because then they think they're not comparing themselves when they come over. Boy, you know, my house isn't as nice as yours or whatever. Mm-hmm. You want them to feel comfortable, mm-hmm. you know. So sometimes a mess is more comfortable than immaculate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's something that I, I mean, that's actually very close to what I wrote down of. Uh, I'm a people pleaser, and I like to have a very good image. And I think that my image, it, it's giving sacrificially of what we want to be you. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, a challenge is the unknown of how your children are going to behave. But yeah, but you feel that freedom, like with these people from church, like you know what you're getting into, UCS before come over. But it's hard when it's stranger. I mean, we've been very hesitant. Like we have neighbors who are starting to connect with, and I'm like, I want to have them over, but are they just gonna like run and hide or freak out? Like, are you gonna, what is this? What is this scenario gonna be? And you need to get. Well, and then we've had several of my coworkers over, and the first time it was everything was immaculate, and I, over time I realized that none of them lived this way, and we might even be making them feel uncomfortable by by doing this. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, our children. I think that your point about the evangelism to the home and through the home is is good because I think one obstacle can be with the through the home is to think that I don't have my routines in place to the home. And I know there's times in our life when we were more consistent with having family worship or whatever, then it wasn't odd with whatever kids in the neighborhood were in the house as well, just to say, hey, you know, here's the next revival, we're going to have family worship and sit down and enjoy it. But when those routines weren't in place and we weren't being consistent, then it seemed awkward. And there were times it felt like, okay, it's not enough, you know? And so one of the obstacles is to think that it's not to follow a certain pattern where I have to get everything in order. And yet, there's benefits to that. Does that make sense? There's benefits to having that order. But even if you don't, you can jump in and then still end up with some great conversations, especially with kids, having an open door with kids in the neighborhood or kids from school or whatever it might be, allowing them to come and be great. Yeah. Well, I think one tip that we got from you guys was when the challenge is either you're an introvert or that you just felt awkward doing the small talk thing and not quite sure how they is to have more than one person over at a time that it just breaks the ice and you don't have to feel on all the time. <laughs> you can be doing something in the kitchen and other people can talk to each other and then you can come back in you know and I think that's been a huge difference for us with hosting people. Um, and it gives more opportunity for more people to fellowship with each other. Like and I thought Rosaria Butterfield's book was really challenging when she was talking about having unbelievers with believers mm-hmm. over at the same time mm-hmm. and going how often do we tend to segregate mm-hmm. those groups and we haven't done a good job of that but no. working on that part. Yeah. <laughs> to process so if I can be as bold as Ben was I think for me the greatest obstacle at least when we were first married to opening our house for hospitality is I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> you know, I, I was an introvert, and when I'm around a large group of people, sometimes the next day I'm just white. And just selfishly, I don't want to go through that. Mm-hmm. And the Lord had to really work in my heart, which is terrible for a pastor to say. <laughs> you know, but the Lord had to really work in my heart and realize it wasn't about what I wanted. 
It's about the life the Lord called me to. And so, you know, my wife is gracious. We slowly eased into it, you know, over time. And now I, I love to do it and I look forward and I'm sometimes like thinking, well, who are we going to have over and, you know, stuff like that. But sometimes it's, you know, even though I know we're supposed to do it, sometimes we don't want to do it. I was thinking with, because the question, you know, about trying to pinpoint the challenges, you know, and, and in fact, probably comfort you were saying or personality that I have, uh, it's really selfishness and lack of love. I mean, sometimes, I mean, it's kind of part of my like, who, you know, because we don't like to call it as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we, it's just a bad attitude of selfish and control, but when we, I mean, I personally, when I see that way, then it kind of hits more and say like, okay, so it's, and, or, and then for humility too, because same thing, it's, uh, you, you, I, it's like, you want to be a good example, you want to be a good testimony, but you're not perfect. Yeah. And I was thinking the same thing, what is the kids, what is the, you know, yeah. it could be the, how does the house look, but it could be how the, Family looks and how right. you know what is Rachel going to say? Which is like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's my humility and yeah. really the true gospel is really when you you know we're not different. It's just honestly being willing to be transparent. I know that it's an act of obedience and love. Mm. Yeah. Mm. These are all great, great comments. Um, any last things to share before we? Take some time to pray together. Kind of like you were saying, what um, <coughs> we've been talking over for the last few weeks is just kind of relationships and stuff like that. How but uh, the point that was made today was that we're called to revere those who are in authority to a certain extent, look out for their well-being. Well, what better way to look out for anyone's well-being than to look out for their soul? And uh, for everyone that got this our life, if we have any compassion at all, that's what we should be desiring. Something I'd like to add is um, actually related to when I'm preparing students to perform in front of people and they're really nervous about Mm -hmm. getting up in front of people. I think something that's really helpful is to like name the fear, like acknowledge it, and and then also like think about so what what am I like actually afraid of here? Like okay, so my house is messier than I'd like it to be. What is the worst case scenario <laughs> when they come over? Like are they gonna be offended and go oh I don't spend time in messy homes. Leave, like, what's going to happen, right? You know, they're, they're going to go off and tell the oh, their house is kind of messy. Maybe, but, like, what does that, what does that matter, really? Um, yeah, so sometimes just naming the fear and trying to imagine, like, what's the, what's the worst thing, right? And you realize that it's not, you know, with my students, it's... What do you think? Like the whole crowd is gonna rush you and attack you because you just know, like, it's just not gonna happen, right? This is—it's never. Our fears are usually blown way out of proportion. It says when we think about what's on the line. If this is, you know, if we are the only Christian this person might ever know, and you think God's signed to be right next door to this person, and I think I just don't know if I can cross that line of having them over because what if? And it's good to say what if what. 
Yeah. 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 What if they don't like my house? Yeah. 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 No, but it's ultimately, and that's kind of what the blessings. To me, again, understanding theology, what a freeing thing it was going to like reform theology, because we know ultimately, ultimately salvation is of God. Yeah. And God uses broken things and He's inspired up and all that. It's a it, good thing that is not about the house, that is not mm-hmm. about the enemy. It's, a, it's of God, and yeah. the job is just to be obedient, yeah. you know, and faithful. Even in that, that's a, you know. Yeah. Well, and to look at those spheres of things and go, how could this minister to someone? Mm-hmm. So your kids might be crazy, but they also can be great icebreakers. Mm-hmm. Like, kids open up the ability to yeah. talk to anyone because they will talk to anyone, mm-hmm. you know, and your messy home can help people feel comfortable and feel like they're not alone in that. And having simplistic meals can make people feel like, oh, I don't have to have a lot of money mm-hmm. to be able to host people. And I just think, to name those fears, to think about the worst case scenario, and then to go, how could, even if this is the worst case scenario, and it is the scripture, how could that bless somebody? And realize that that might be exactly what that person needs. Well, let's take some time now to pray um, specifically for what we talked about tonight, but um, even beyond that, just um, evangelism in our lives, in our church, um, 